Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Anchor Church podcast. It is our desire at the Anchor to provide a place for you to know God, find freedom, discover your God-given purpose, and ultimately make a difference in the world around you. Each week, the Anchor podcast features Sunday sermon. You can follow along in this podcast episode and read the sermon notes on our website by visiting theanchor.me. Now, let's get into the Word. I've had a good time with Jesus this morning, and so I'm really wanting to go somewhere today, so I hope you're willing to go there with me. Amen? So, um, yeah, let me say this. The approach I'm going to take today is not the approach that I'm comfortable with. It's not one that I prefer, uh, but I do believe that there's loads of life lessons in this from Jesus, and so it requires one thing on your end. It requires you to get hungry. It requires you to lean in and just have faith that God will speak to you. Amen? So as we go through this, it is a lot, uh, but I believe he wants to talk, so we're going to listen. So Jesus, we thank you for today. Father, I thank you for your presence settling in this room. Lord, I thank you for our hearts, God, finding that center place with you at this moment. Father, everything that's going on in life, God, all the distractions, all of the, the things that are just, man, our busy schedules, Father, I pray that you would help us kind of remove all that from our peripheral vision at this moment, God, and we can tune into you, tune into your spirit, because, God, I believe your presence and your anointing uh, is readily available in this place today, God, and that you want to say some things that are profound to people. So, Lord, we pray today, God, that as you desire to speak, that we're going to lean in, we're going to get hungry, and we thank you, God, for you coming and just doing only what you can do, and that's transforming and changing our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so listen, this morning we're going to continue uh, our current series out of the book of Haggai. Uh, so if you're taking notes, this is part two. If you missed part one, I encourage you to go check out the podcast. Now, the reason we are titling this, What's the Problem, is simply because of this. Because when you begin to read uh, the book of Haggai, you see that God is, uh, is literally prophetically speaking through Haggai to confront three common problems that I believe that every person deals with. And those three problems are this, the problem of being uh, disinterested really disinterested in God because we get so distracted. The second one is this, is the problem of being discouraged. And the third problem is the problem of being dissatisfied. Now, before we turn our full attention to that second problem today, uh, you know, that, that God addresses through Haggai, I want to quickly repeat a few key points from part one. And so, for starters, I think it's important for us to remember, you're going to see how the approach we're going to take today, but it's important for us to understand that the ministry of the prophet Haggai is divinely connected to the events that took place in Second Kings Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and the book of Zechariah. So if we just read Haggai kind of like it's an island to itself, we're going to miss the point. But rather, if we want to actually see the overall picture of what's happening before and during the book of Haggai, then we need to connect it to the, uh, the other pieces of the puzzle that are, that are found in those seven books. Are you with me? So listen, when we do this, uh, I believe it allows us to follow a series of events that leads up to Haggai, and it gives us a better understanding of why he spoke the things that he spoke. And so for the sake of connecting the dots, I'm going to take uh, you know, five or so minutes here, and I want to give you a couple of the more significant or noteworthy, noteworthy moments that are found in some of those other books. Like, uh, for example, the first really where it kind of gets the ball rolling. So we see that uh, after Israel, or the Israelites, turned their backs on God for an extended period of time. And what I mean by that is that they refused to follow God's ways, His laws, and they refused to listen to the prophets. After they did that, for an extended period of time, God decided to remove His hand of protection off of them, and He allowed them to be conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. Now, if you go and read 2 Corinthians 36, you'll see, uh, Chronicles 36, excuse me, you'll see that when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, they had uh, no restraint or no pity. Like when God moved his hand, he moved his hand. Literally, when, when the Babylonians came in, they killed uh, the young men, they killed the young women, they killed the old people, they killed the sick people, the poor people, the rich people. It was an absolute massacre. Then they tore down the city walls, they burned the city gates, they burned down people's homes, literally from the palace to the porch people's houses and more importantly and really key to where we're going today they burned down the most sacred place of worship which was known as Solomon's temple now after King Nebuchadnezzar caused all that havoc he took basically the the best and the brightest of the Jewish people into captivity and among those taken we know those young men like Daniel Shadrach Meshach and Abednego all of them are ones that made that journey there's your connection 
So here's something I find really interesting about the time in, in Babylon. There's a point that I want to make to us today. Once again, we're going to talk about things, and there's just lessons in here that I want you to grab a hold of. But here's the thing is, even though God allowed them to be taken captive and attempt to turn their heart back to him, King Nebuchadnezzar clearly went too far, and he abused the authority that God had granted him. So this is something that obviously didn't settle with God. He wasn't pleased by it. He didn't approve of it. He didn't take pleasure in it. And we know that's true because of what we read in Zechariah chapter 1. Now, in this portion, it may be a little confusing to you what's happening. is Here's Zechariah. He's a young prophet, and he has this vision of four horses going throughout the land. It's four angels on horses going out the land. And in the middle of that vision, he hears an angel ask God a question. And here's the question that the angel asked the Lord. It says, O Lord, for 70 years now you have been angry with Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. How long How long until you again show mercy to them? He's referring to the seven years of exile or captivity. This says, Then the angel said to me, Zechariah, Shout this message for all to hear. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. My love for Jerusalem is passionate and strong, but I am very angry with the other nations. Obviously, Babylon in particular says, I was only a little angry with my people, but the nations inflicted harm on them far beyond my intentions. Now, here's the reason I'm bringing that up to you today, because uh, knowing some of the backgrounds that people have come from in church, that you've been taught that literally like whatever happens is just God. And I want you to know that if you read that verse then you find out that it exposes the myth of, the, once again, of God's sovereignty, that, that literally whatever happens will just automatically him. That's not the case. Because I think, once again, you can see right there that when God places someone in authority, it doesn't mean that every decision that they make or every word that they say is orchestrated by God. Doesn't matter if it's from the, the national government to the local government, doesn't matter if it's in the educational system or if it's in the church or if it's even in a family structure. Amen? Literally, that every leader has a free will and is given responsibility from God to steward their position and their authority well. Once again, that can be from the president to a dad and a mom in a home. There's so many things that we just accept and go, well, and we have no pushback in the spirit. Yo, there's loads of things we need to push back in the spirit. What is that? What do I mean? We need to pray. Amen? And not just accept things. So, listen, obviously, once again, to the point, clearly Nebuchadnezzar was doing this and God was ticked off about it. It says, therefore, this is what the Lord says. I have returned to show mercy to Jerusalem. How's he going to do that? It says, my temple will be rebuilt, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The towns of Israel will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem as his own. In other words, what he's saying is this, is God's saying this, finally, enough is enough. Like my anger towards the Babylonians has now surpassed what I've ever felt towards my people, so I'm going to step in and change things. And that's exactly what God did. We know when we read basically Jeremiah, we see that after 70 years of them being taken captive, God rose up another king named Cyrus to go in to defeat Babylon. And approximately a year later, like we talked a few weeks ago, God supernaturally moved in Cyrus's heart, and he released the Jewish people to go back and to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So soon after Cyrus made that declaration, we know that roughly 50,000 Jews left Babylon, not only with Cyrus's blessing, but more importantly, with God's blessing again on their lives. So here's this group of people, 5,000 people that had a single word from God in their hearts. It gave them a renewed hope and a renewed vision for their life. God had personally given them a mission to rebuild the temple, and they were determined to complete it. Like, don't miss that. These people were determined to do what God wanted them to do. So they arrive approximately a thousand mile journey, they land back in Jerusalem, and they promptly start working with a unified effort to rebuild the the foundation of the temple. Literally two years in, the foundation's built, and you would think after a two-year project, once again, knowing everything that would have taken place, removing the rubble, all that, building it back, just loads of work that would have went to that, that you just think after that two-year project, man, there would have been an ample reason to celebrate. Can we agree to that? Like, man, that, if there's ever a chance to throw a party for the sign of progress that's happening, it's right there. But when you read the story, once again, not just in Haggai, but with the overall picture, uh, you see that obviously everyone wasn't feeling as joyous or as happy as what they saw in front of them when they looked and saw the foundation be completed. Some were happy, some were not happy. 
Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is really the the hinge point of where we're going today. In other words, if you don't get what we're about to talk about, you're not going to understand anything we're talking about because you're about to see the root of the second problem that Haggai had to deal with. Watch what happens. Ezra 3. It says, when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests took off their work clothes and they put on their priestly robes and they took their places to blow their trumpets. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good, his faithful love for Israel endures forever. And then I'll go ahead and kind of let you know, the young people in the room, they basically are in the city, that all those people gave a great shout Praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But watch this next word, but. Somebody say but. It says, but many of the older priests, or we can say the older Levites and the other older leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. Then it goes back to the younger folks. The others, however, were shouting with joy. This says in verse 13, the joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard Far in the distance. So I like the way the Amplified, because it actually gives us a better picture of what happened in verse 13. So throw up the Amplified, please. Thank you. It says this. It says that the people, talking about the people from far off, they could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping. Like, what was going on here? All of these younger men who had been working really hard to rebuild the foundation, they had nothing to compare it to. They were born in Babylon. They had never worshipped in the temple before, so there was no point of reference for them. Therefore, they were all excited about what had been accomplished, thus all the shouts of joy. But the older men who had previously lived in Jerusalem and worshipped in the temple right before the Babylonian invasion... They knew what they had just completed didn't even come close to comparison to the beauty and the splendor of Solomon's temple. And that broke their heart. So much so that they were weeping as equally as loud as the younger people were shouting. So much so that the people who were watching in the distance couldn't tell if they were happy or if they were sad or they were rejoicing or were they mourning like they didn't know. Like, like if I could say it to you this way. <coughs> I have been in... Uh, church services where there is an incredible, how can I say, just a loud, like a loud shouts of praise from thousands of people. And the place is just literally like you can feel it vibrating and shaking so loud where people are that loud in their worship and their praise to God. So, so in my head, I'm thinking, man, what would it be like to stand in a distance and see that going on? Because we're talking about thousands of people here. We're not talking about a handful Right? There was 50,000 that returned, and there were more of the remnants that were still in Judah and the surrounding area that came in and helped. So we we're talking well over 50,000 people, and it's mixed between people shouting, and then people not have like a shedding of tear, but they're literally from their belly. They're weeping so loud that it's equal to that shout. Can you imagine that? I think there's something there in this. And I'm like, like, what is it, Lord? But, but, but I, I know what it's like. I'm only, I'm only you know, whatever, mid-40s, right? But, but I've seen some powerful moves of God. Like, I've seen God's power fall in places, and it was undeniable. And there's parts of me and my wife, we have conversations quite often, that there's things that, man, we long for that again. Right, like genuine moves of the Spirit. And so, and so I can understand this sense where we go, okay, we have a good Sunday. And people go, wow, that was awesome. And we're in comparison going, it doesn't really compare. So I, get, I kind of understand what's happening. Right, have you ever been around like old guys that have like experienced like genuine true revival? And it's like, man, you younger whippersnappers, you got no clue. Right, like in my head, I think about, um, I think about like the Hebrides revival, the Welsh revival, where God moved so mightily that literally bars were shutting down, that police stations had no work to do, just everybody was worshiping Jesus. Right, to to go like now we think we had a good service. Oh, I felt the goosebump. Right, like that's what I see kind of happening. Right, so so 
that's what comes to my mind. I don't know what comes to your mind, but, but at least in my opinion, the, the mixed response among the younger and the older Israelites, uh, it had to be demoralizing to the whole, like the opposite ends of the spectrum they were at. Like, like I'm just thinking, man, surely the older men's response had to take the wind out of the younger men's cell in that moment. Like it, it had to affect the team morale, if you will, in a negative way. So, so in, in my head, I'm going, okay, after two years of back-breaking work, the outcome is this mixed response. Now, where did that leave everyone emotionally? Right? And, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, in this confusing moment, I think it had to leave them feeling one emotion, and that's one word I'm going to give you, and that's called this, discouragement. Discouragement on both ends. So, so think about it for a minute. When does discouragement typically enter into a person's life? As a common rule, people tend to get discouraged when their expectations don't align with their reality. Is that true? So in other words, people usually become discouraged when what they think should happen doesn't happen. Right? So for the older men in this story, they became discouraged because their expectation of restoring the temple back to its former glory was falling way short. For the young men, they became discouraged because the older men who they probably looked up to weren't as excited about their efforts as they were, as they expected them to be, right? And so from both sides, in my mind, it's easy to see uh, once their expectations didn't meet their reality, they were discouraged, Okay. So, so I just think so we can better understand what they must have been feeling in that moment. Here's what the word discouragement means. Just kind of give you a better picture. It means to be deprived of courage, hope, or confidence. To be disheartened or deprived of morale and enthusiasm. Let me say that again. That these guys were deprived of courage, deprived of hope, deprived of confidence. They were disheartened and deprived of morale and enthusiasm. Man, can we all agree that's probably a good, a good uh, accurate assessment of where they would have been? So let, let me maybe pause here for a moment, just step out on a limb. I want to make this personal for a moment. <clears throat> Here's me stepping out on a limb. I, I'm going to guess that more than likely, everybody in this room can relate to how they must have been feeling in that moment in some way. Right? That, like, surely everybody in this room, if, you've, if you live and breathe and you're older than 10... Right? Then, then you've been discouraged at one point or another in your life. Okay? Sure, it might not have had to do anything with rebuilding a temple, but, you know, maybe it had something to do with your family. Maybe it had something to do with a friendship. Maybe it had something to do with your job or maybe your school or maybe uh, a church. Right? Maybe it had something to do with your health, your finances, or even your relationship with God. Like, like whatever the origin of it, you know, may, may have been, right? It, it doesn't necessarily matter. The point is this, is somewhere along the line, you had high expectations, but however life was going, instead of seeing what you hoped for, uh, you know, happening, you got knocked down and it left you feeling discouraged. It left you feeling deprived of courage, deprived of hope, deprived of confidence, right? It left you feeling disheartened and deprived of enthusiasm. In other words, it left you feeling like you had no more wind in your sails. Am I the only one that's ever been there? No, no, okay? So listen, on that note, I, I got some really good news for you today, and I got some really bad news for you. I came to encourage you, okay? The bad news is this. I just sounded like my son. Bad news is this. Man, if I was going through puberty again, it would be awesome. I'd get a little taller. Anyway, so <laughs> the, the, the bad news is this, is that uh, if, you've, if you've ever been discouraged before in this room, if you've ever been discouraged, here's the bad news. It probably won't be the last time. Man, don't you feel you, Thank you. You're welcome. Free. Free. Listen, the harsh reality is it's impossible. I think it's impossible to go through this life and avoid not just moments, but possibly seasons of discouragement. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, man, life has its ups and downs. It's just kind of part of it. But, but here's the good news on the other side, and this is what I hope you really grab a hold of today, is this, is that you get to choose how that discouragement affects you. You choose. Right? So, for example, let's say that your marriage is on the rocks. Let's say you had a divorce. 
let's say you got offended somewhere, right? You got sideways with someone, maybe it was somebody that was a friend, maybe it was a family member. Maybe you got fired. Maybe your job isn't working out like you had hoped it would, right? Maybe the, your, your power bill and your grocery bill has, has shot up so much, you're trying to figure out how in the world am I going to pay that thing. You know, maybe you're tired of dealing with health issues. Maybe you got church hurt somewhere, right? Maybe you've been praying and it feels like God's a thousand miles away. Like, like listen, it could be a thousand different things, right? But guess what? The good news, once again, is how you choose to respond to all of that disappointment and all that discouragement is really what determines uh, how that thing has a lasting impact on your life. It's up to you. Nobody can make that decision for you. It's your choice. If you're with me, say, oh, yeah. So, listen, on that note, I think a mature response to discouragement really would cause us to remember what the, uh, the promise that God gave us. We sang about this morning, but the promise that God gave us in Romans 8, 28, it simply says this. It says, and we know that in all things. Somebody say all things. All Does God mean all things? Yes. yes. So that involves discouragement and disappointment too. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This actually means, and I understand there's people that make this and fluff it up, but actually what it means is that in spite of what disappointment, in spite of what discouragements, hardships, suffering, or difficult situation you may be facing or how someone may be treating you, if you choose to keep your heart right and you run to God with whatever it is, he'll see to it in his infinite wisdom that it will turn out for your good. And simply that means this, is that he will produce a more Christ-like character and a greater maturity in you than you have before the incident that's what it means it's a promise from God right so so but the question has to be on the other side of this and this is just the way I naturally think is what happens when we choose to do the opposite what happens when we choose instead of running to God we throw a pity party instead what happened discouragement like what happens next listen over the years I've learned that discouragement always opens up a door hear me always opens up a door enemy will be more than opens if we don't readily invite God to come into the situation. Guess what? The enemy will be more than happy to invite himself in. Right? Listen, it, it's, when it comes to discouragement, things rarely stay neutral. They rarely just stay in this nice little sweet spot. No, no, no. Either God's going to get involved or the devil's going to get involved. Preach. Right? Listen, I can tell you from personal experience that one of the main ways, hear me, church, one of the main ways the devil gains access into our lives is through discouragement. And he's a master at compounding the mental and the emotional aspects that come along with discouragement. In other words, if it was at a level two, just let him start talking, he'll go to a level seven very quickly. So, listen, going back to our story with the Israelites, like, I would love to stand up here to tell you today that, man, when those older men and those younger men started struggling, right, with those feelings of discouragement, that they ran to God. But they didn't. Instead, they left the door open, and the enemy came in. Here's how we know that. Because if you can remember back to three weeks ago when we preached part one, uh, we saw that it was after they finished the foundation, it was after that awkward moment of shouting and weeping, that's when the neighboring Samaritans or the enemy showed up and started causing a bunch of trouble and attempt to keep them from rebuilding the temple. In fact, let me show you a verse that simply says this. This is a New Living Translation, Ezra 4. It says, Then the local residents, that's Samaritans, tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work. They bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. Good neighbors. Right? Or we could simply say this, that when those guys showed up, they did everything they could to keep them from accomplishing the will of God for their lives. That's how I want you to hear it today. Because God's given every one of us a plan and a purpose in Him. Amen? So, so to give a bit more context, how did the Samaritans you know, stir up serious issues. Here's what they did. They, they, a little group of them, they got together and they decided to write a letter to King Artaxerxes, right? Who just so happened to be the king that Nehemiah was the cupbearer for. So in that letter, the Samaritans posed themselves as these humble, loyal servants to his throne. And, and they made the Jews out to be a rebellious bunch who were trying to get bigger so they could take over, right? And since the king wasn't aware of the decree that was established, you know, uh, what were we at now? 16 years earlier, basically with King Cyrus. Um, no, no, no. Yes. 
Basically, what happened was is because is because they, he wasn't aware of that. He sent a letter back on, uh, basically, owned a letter of his own back to the Samaritans, commanding the Jews to stop immediately, okay, to stop working. And we find that in Ezra chapter 4, but it says this in verse 23. It kind of puts it plainly. It says, when this letter from King Artaxerxes was read. In other words, the letter showed up. The Samaritans that sent it got together. They read it. And, and, and it says when they read it, they hurried to Jerusalem. Then with a show of strength, they forced the Jews to stop building. And that's exactly what they did. They stopped building. So, so, so watch this. Two years hard work foundation. So it's two years, okay? Two years foundation. And then they had this, this morning praise, awkward moment. And then they got discouragement. And then the enemy stepped in through the Samaritans, and they ceased their work. Am I making sense? I'm trying to clear that up a little bit. If you nod your head, it'll make me feel a lot better. Okay. All right. So, so but if you stop, you go, okay, that, that, that they stopped working. In my head, I'm like, but, but hold on, wait a minute. I, I thought two years earlier God had told them to rebuild the temple, not just the foundation. Is that true? Yes, it's true. So, so was God now changing his mind because a group of men wanted them to stop? Like, was, was God somehow now letting them off the hook because of a bunch of bullies? Like, was he changing his will for their lives because of a few obstacles and it got a little difficult? Absolutely not, right? So, so clearly, discouragement not only opened up the door for the enemy to come and cause issues, but also opened up the door so the enemy comes sow seeds of fear and seeds of intimidation to their hearts as well. And if we can at that moment to remember what discouragement means, it actually means to be deprived of courage. So it zapped them of their courage. And so what did the Jews do the moment that their courage was zapped? Instead of ignoring the enemy like they should have, they chose to obey the voice of the enemy, and in doing so, they inadvertently disobeyed the voice of God. Y'all understand that? Y'all please, church, please hear me. That every time you listen and obey the voice of the enemy... You're disobeying God's voice. Every time. Every day we live our lives in accordance to obedience to one of those voices. Listen, I can't help but to wonder how many times we've done the same thing. That we have obeyed the voice of the enemy and doing so disobeyed the voice of God. And what happens is, if I can take through the process, discouragement comes, opposition arises, the enemy starts whispering in our ear, right? Fear walks in the door, intimidation kicks in, and now we're struggling to have courage. We're disheartened, our enthusiasm shot, right? Our backbone is turned into jelly. And instead of running to God for help, we give in. And the will of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God for our lives takes a back seat to whatever the enemy wants. I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but man, we've all done it at some point. There's not a person in this room, including myself, that hasn't compromised at some point, that hasn't obeyed the voice of the enemy, and hasn't faltered in the will of God for our lives at some point. We've all done it. Can I hear her? That's right. So how many of you guys know that when God's people stop obeying him to obey the voice of the enemy, that might be a problem? Maybe, right? So, so like I mentioned a few weeks back, that was one of the problems that got a hold of the Israelites, not for a year, not for five years, not for 10 years, but for a grand total of 16 years. For 16 years, this group of people who left Babylon with a mission in mind, man, they laid aside that mission, the will of God for their lives, and they surrendered to the voice of the enemy. Here's why they did it. If you don't get anything out of today, please hear what I'm about to say. There's a great life lesson in this if you want to walk with Jesus. Here's why they did it. They did it, um, basically they surrendered, right? Let me just say it way. Because as long as they obeyed the enemy, be clear, as long as they obeyed the enemy, the enemy left them alone. That's why they did it. Because as long as they obeyed the enemy, the enemy left them alone. In doing so, they surrendered, they surrendered for a false sense of peace. I cannot tell you how much of the body of Christ is guilty of that at this moment. Let's set aside our convictions. Let's set aside what we know is holiness. Let's set aside what we know is the Word of God, God's ways. Let's set aside, let's not ruffle any feathers. If I can get along with the devil, then I'll have unity. Y'all do realize that's happening, right? But how many of you guys know that, man, false peace will never be a substitute for the real peace 
is found in Jesus through true obedience. Listen, the Bible is clear that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the author of peace. Jesus originated, or how can I say it? The Bible says in Colossians that, that Jesus made peace through the cross. Okay? So Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But the Bible is also clear that the devil is the Prince of Darkness. Peace and darkness are two different things. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness, two different things. Okay? And so I just think this, that we have to understand as God's people that unity with the devil, unity with the devil's schemes, unity with the way devil does life, and the unity with the devil's people, guess what? That will never produce genuine peace in the heart of a believer. All that thing does when we try to do what, what they were doing is it keeps God's people silent, it keeps us unmotivated, unproductive, ineffective, and it keeps us powerless. And it keeps us, just like it did with the Israelites, from walking in the will of God and bearing lasting fruit. I know that's not popular. I don't give a rip about popular. And I don't give a rip about, you know, what's politically correct. At the end of the day, we are kingdom of light people, and there's a kingdom of darkness, and we got to get down to that. Right? Man, I'm not, listen, Jesus came to divide. The Bible says it. I'm like so fed up with everybody trying to appease everybody. Listen, truth doesn't appease. Truth exposes lies of the devil. Okay? So watch this. Like we said in part one, after 16 years, God said, you know, enough's enough. We've appeased the enemy too long, right? So he finally stepped in by speaking truth to Haggai, right? And when Haggai spoke that prophetic word, what happened? It broke the Israelites free of all that apathy, all that fear, all that discouragement that they had been carrying for all those years. It slammed the door shut for the enemy. And what happened? The Bible says it literally... That after 16 years, the prophet spoke. 23 days later, all they did for that 23, they just got their hearts right, and they got their supplies, and they went back to work 23 days later. They started rebuilding the temple again. Now, did you guys grab a hold of what I said a second ago? I hope you didn't miss it. I said this, as long as they did what the enemy wanted them to do, they were left alone. So guess what happened when they stopped doing what the enemy wanted them to do? <laughs> Ezra 5, it says that when the new stones started being laid and when the timber walls started going up, guess who showed up for round two? The Samaritans, right? And here's what they wanted to know. Ezra 5, 3, they wanted to know who gave you permission to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? Let me put it to you in our terms. Who do you think you are to mess up the status quo we got going on around here? Like, let me say it this way. Some of y'all that got dysfunction in your family and you decide, devil, no more. No more. I'm done with that junk. Man, I'm going to stand in the gap. We're going to start interceding and praying. We're going to be the light. And then you start hearing the devil talking. Who do you think you are to come bring order to this family? Right? Like, like even this. Y'all that have been here for years and years and years that you've lived under the cloud of darkness. It's a beautiful place, but there's a cloud of darkness here. If we can't see that, we're spiritually blind. Okay, so, so it's like the enemy saying, man, who do you think you are to mess up the status quo? I've had this place bound a long time. Who do you think you are to think you're going to change it? If y'all think God put us here to just hold hands with the devil, you're believing a lie. If y'all think that you're here to live and breathe and not make a difference in this region, you're believing a lie. I, I know for one, I wake up every day, God didn't bring me here to play status quo and just become a cute little church. There's a mission at hand. It's the kingdom of God as it is in heaven on this earth. Jesus, let's see it. Amen? But it ain't going to happen if we just try to get along with everybody. Little Ravenhill made this quote, and I'm going to jack it totally up. But, but he basically said this. Jesus came. We're talking about God in the flesh. He is love. He is love. He is holiness. He is grace and truth. That he came in the flesh, and this world couldn't get along with him. So what makes us think that the world's going to get along with us? If they're getting along with us, it's because we're not doing something right. Just a thought for you. So here's what happened. They started building. An old uh, Samaritan showed up again. And it says this, basically that when, when they showed up, it stirred up all that stuff, all those unhealthy emotions from their past. That's how the devil works. It's why we got to get whole in here. If you ever think you're going to do something great out here, you got to get whole in here, okay? 
uh, you, you can only go as, as far as your past has been healed. So what happened was, as they began to speak and it stirred up all that stuff, and when the enemy started talking, what happened is it reminded all the old men about the temple, it reminded the young men how the old men responded. And, and so from that single question, who gave you permission, man, it put them on the verge of collapsing and discouragement again. Like after a month of being back at work, right, trying to rebuild the temple, the enemy had them on the ropes one more time. Have you ever been there? Me too. And that's when God gave Haggai the second prophetic word to solve that second problem Haggai chapter 2 says, The Lord sent another message to the prophet Haggai. Say this to Zerubbabel, to Jeshua, and to the remnant of God's people there in the land. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, and its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. Let me give it to you in Barney terms. This is like God showing up and saying this. All right, I, I know what you're all feeling and thinking. Like, so who, who in here has you know, has, has, has seen Solomon's temple and all this splendor before. All right, come on, raise your hands. Kind of like what he's saying to the group, right? Raise your hand. All right, now tell me, how does it compare? Come on, be honest. And then they're like, I don't think it really, don't think it really compares. And he, and he says, in your mind, you probably think the whole project is a joke. You probably think what you're doing is useless. I appreciate you admitting that, but I need you to understand something now if we're going to move forward. I'm not seeing this project like you see this project. Right? In other words, God drew a line in the sand, and by saying that, he basically exposed two things. The first thing he exposed was he exposed their hearts. See, even though God got all those older men working again, right, after all that big, that big layoff, right, after he got them working again, he still knew that he had to address the residual negative attitude and the pain from their past that was still lingering in their hearts. Why? Because he didn't want that influencing or continue to influence all the young men anymore. It's like God's sitting there going, okay, listen, if we're going to move forward, we've got to move forward in unity. And how are we going to do that when half of the room is motivated and the other half are discouraged? He knows that they couldn't. So he had to confront the older men's attitude. Once again, they're paying from the past if they were going to actually complete the task together. God is always about unity in the spirit. Okay? The second reason he said it was is he was removing their, their reason to be discouraged. Second reason, to remove their reason for being discouraged. In other words, he knew... By basically saying this, it was his way of stopping them from playing the comparison game with the past. See, like God knew, like I was talking about a while ago, like God knew if they kept looking in the rearview mirror at Solomon's temple that they would never be able to see what God was trying to do now, right? And so he reassured them that he wasn't comparing their current project with Solomon's temple. The only thing he was concerned with at that moment was this, is when this thing's done, will it glorify me or not? That's what God wanted to know. And so I think there's a personal application in here for all of us. Y'all do realize that God's not in here trying to compare your life to somebody else's in this room. He's not even comparing your life to your spouse's life. Okay? He's not comparing your family to somebody else's family. He isn't comparing your gifts and your talents to anybody else's. Just like he's not coming here comparing my preaching style or my preaching gifting, my speaking gifting to someone else's. And, and he's not even doing this. He's not even comparing the anchor church to another church in this region. He's not doing that. God does not do that. The only thing he cares about is do we glorify him? Does my life, does my family, does our words, our worship, right? The way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, all those things, does it glorify him? Does this church, do we collectively as church, do we glorify him? If the answer is yes, then he's pleased. That's what matters to him. That was his point he was making then. I believe is still the point he's trying to make today. So watch this. Hang with me. We're almost done. With those two points hanging in the air, God gave them the next piece of the solution. It says this in Haggai 2, verse 4 and 5. It says, but now the Lord says. In other words, I know your enemy's up to his old tricks, but I need you to be strong. Guys, I need you to be courageous. I need you to be resolute. I need you to be firm. I need you to display strength. I need you to withstand the enemy. And he starts listening to them. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Jeshua. Be strong, all you people still left in the land. And now get to work. In other words, obey my voice and stop obeying the enemy. And he says, for I am with you. This says in verse 5, it says, My spirit remains among you just as I promised when you came out of Egypt. In other words, in the same way that I defeat the Egyptians, I can defeat the Samaritans if you'll let me. Right? I'm still willing to fight for you. I'm still willing to protect you. And he says these last words, so do not be afraid. 
In short, man, stand up in the face of the opposition you see. Stand your ground against the enemy and watch what I'll do. So watch this, circling all the way back to Ezra chapter 5. Once again, we know that the Samaritans demand to know who gave them permission. But this time, instead of them collapsing at that thought, uh, you know, going, okay, they're going to bully us again. What happened this time, because they had that shifted mindset, because Haggai spoke a prophetic word, and they believed the prophetic word, this time they answered rightly. They said it this way in Ezra 5, verse 11. It says, this was their answer. We are the servants of the Most High God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built here many years ago by a great king of Israel. In other words, if you want to know who gave us permission, God gave us permission. If you want to know who's given us permission to do what we're supposed to do in this region, God gave us permission. We don't need permission from anybody else. God gave it to us. Amen? So, and as you can expect, the Samaritans, just like they're no different than me and you in the sense of this, they don't like being told no. They don't like, you know, not getting what they want. So, so what did they do? They didn't, they didn't like it when they said, we're going to keep building. So go on, right? So they reverted back to one of their old tricks. And what was their trick? They wrote a letter again to the king. It worked last time, didn't it? So this time, there was a different king. Artaxerxes was gone. Darius was the king. So what happened was, instead of Darius just uh, taking them at their word, like these guys are a bunch of troublemakers, he actually went and did research, and he found where Cyrus gave them permission. And so he wrote a letter himself back to the Samaritans. Now, I imagine the Samaritans basically sitting back, you know, their little huddle that just wrote the letter. They're thinking, okay, it worked last time. It's going to work this time. And they're kind of already, you know, going, yay, we've won. We got the victory. And so they're sitting there because they know a letter's coming. And sure enough, one day, uh, there's the royal mailman. He shows up at the, you know, whatever their mailbox. And he puts the letter in for King Darius. They're like, yes, we know what it's going to say. He's going to make them quit working. And then they go and they open the letter and they start reading it. And their, and their face, which was just so arrogant and so, you know, basically like we're going to win. I can see it just changing because as they read the letter, Darius says, do not get in the Jewish people's way. Let them build. And then he goes on. You can read it. It's in there. And then it says this. It says, oh, and by the way, whatever construction cost that they have from this point forward, you're going to pay it. Makes them probably wish they wouldn't have sent that letter at that moment, right? And so, and so, and then if that wasn't enough, King Darius, I love King Darius. King Darius said this. He said, if any of y'all disobey what I'm saying, if you've got a problem with it, then I'll see to it that my army will come to your house and they'll pull the beam out from your house and they will impel you on it. And then after they kill your butt on that big old stick, then what they're going to do is they're going to tear your house down and make it a pile of rubble and kill your family as well. Tell me my man wasn't being serious. And then it simply says this. The next verse in the Bible says this. It's beautiful. Uh, let, me, let me scoot down where it's at. It says this. It says, they complied at once. <laughs> like, what a huge understatement. Like, talking about getting people in order, right? Anyways, but, but I want us to notice something because here's the takeaway. I know this is long, okay? I know it's a lot of information. But, but here's something I want us to grab a hold of here. Is I want us to notice that when they accepted discouragement and defeat and when they just accepted the words of the enemy... Notice how uh, emboldened and how controlling the enemy came against them. But on the other hand, watch what happened when they chose to believe and obey God's word by throwing off discouragement. Look how bold God became on their behalf. And it's like, guys, he'll do the same for us if we'll let him. If we'll let him. Amen? If we'll be strong and if we'll obey. And then it goes on and simply says this. God gives them this long-term picture of what's going to happen. You can read the rest in Haggai, but the long term is simply this. He said, I'm going to shake heaven and earth. And he goes, oh, guess what? Because he's trying to give them a long-term perspective. He's dealt with the current problem. Now, let me, let me make sure that problem doesn't come back. So he says this. Look there in verse 8. He says, basically, the, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord. And then he makes this comment that blows the rearview mirror out the door, right? Verse 9 says, the future glory of this temple, the one you're working on, the one you don't think is so beautiful, it'll be greater than its past glory. In other words, better than Solomon's temple. And he goes, in this, and in this place, I'll bring the real peace you've been longing for, I, the Lord, have spoken. In other words, you can bank on it. So listen, by God saying those words, please don't miss this. He quickly removed the short-sightedness that often plagues those who are struggling with discouragement. 
let me, let me help you there. Have you ever realized that when you're discouraged, that that's all you think about? It's the thing that you're discouraged about, and you don't see the bigger picture that's going on? Discouragement is extremely short-sighted, and that's why they remained in that same spot for 16 years. But when God began to give them the bigger picture, and he gave them a promise that, guess what? The glory of this house will be greater than the one of the former house, then that shifted things immediately. Because why? When he said those words, it not only affected them, but they realized what we are doing is going to affect future generations. Right? You have to live your life that way. Right? Every one of us leaves a legacy, either good or bad. But we're going to leave one. I would rather affect it in a good way, knowing that the glory of my family is going to be greater in the future than what it was from the line of sinners I came from. If y'all know my family, you know why I'm saying that, right? And so, so obviously this promise was ultimately pointing not just them, but all of God's people, including you and me, that promise is pointing to Jesus. He is the greater glory. That's what it's saying, okay? But at the same time, I want us to see that, man, when God changed their perspective, it motivated them to finish in four years what had been stalled out for 16 years. Like, that's amazing, they could, have, they could have already completed the work four times over if they would have just got going. So there's like things that probably somebody in here that you keep procrastinating on that God's told you to do, and you could have already finished it and could have moved on to the next thing in Jesus if you had just did it. Amen. All right, so if you can, just close your eyes. Just give me about five more minutes if you don't mind. We'll be done. I really appreciate y'all hanging in there. No, that was a lot. Listen, as you just center your heart on him, like I want I want us to value honesty and vulnerability around here. And honesty obviously always starts with him, being honest with God. It's funny how he knows everything, but yet how we act like he doesn't. And we can like hide stuff from him. But but here's where I want us to be honest today, to really ask ourselves, man, like where where and what are you really discouraged about today? Like, where's the spot? Because more than likely, there's somebody in here that's discouraged. And when you're in that spot, I want you to ask yourself this. Just really, let's, let's make it where it should be. Let's ask the Lord to show us if there's any place in that discouragement that I'm listening to the voice of the enemy. Because the reality is, is if you have been in sustained discouragement, more than likely you have grabbed a hold of something that the enemy has spoken. Spirit, one final question, and I'll pause longer so we can really hear. If he gave the Israelites the solution to get them out of their discouragement by giving them a new perspective, new insight, fresh word, what does he want to say to us personally? How does he want to move you forward today out of that place of discouragement. Come on, ask him. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Fresh insight. 
Speak to us, God. Give us a solution. Show us the next step of how we can move forward. Lord, I'm asking God today for your people that they'd be strong and courageous again. They'd be strong and courageous again. Father, today we break fear and we break intimidation off your people. God, today we break, by the power of the name of Jesus, discouragement off your people. Father, I pray that it would just lift off of them today. Lord, let it lift off of them today. Father, I ask for a, a new lease on life, fresh vision, fresh passion, fresh anointing, God, on their life. God, like a new lease on life. Somebody needs that today new lease on life, a new purpose in Jesus. Come on, God, open our eyes. Open our eyes to see what you're doing. God, open our eyes to see. God, that the the glory of this house will be greater than what's in the past. Father, whatever needs to be buried today, whatever needs to be gone, God, maybe it's old thought processes or Lord maybe it's hurt maybe it's pain whatever it is Lord we pray that that thing would be buried and God that it will never be resurrected again God that same song that keeps playing Lord let that thing be gone Jesus we thank you for fresh hope fresh life God I bless your people today I bless your people today bless your people today newness of life newness of life, newness of life, newness of life today. God, fresh faith again. God, that they can breathe again, that they can live again. So obviously there are things I'm praying there that I told different angle than first service, so I know that stuff's for somebody. But I need to say this, I didn't say this last service. Remember What we said, as long as you listen to the enemy, he'll leave you alone. But if you actually leave this place today and you actually do something with what you just heard from God, it's going to stir some things up. And I'm I'm going to encourage you to be strong in that moment and not to falter, but to actually stay the course and watch what God will do for you. Y'all hear me? I know, I know there's a lot of things I said that had to do more with the spiritual climate and atmosphere, but there's things going on in your lives individually, and I get that, that there's things that, there's victories that need to be won in your own life, personally, that need to come to pass, but they're only going to come to pass is if you actually do what he's telling you to do. Amen? Y'all, does that bear witness to y'all? Okay. So Jesus, help your people. Do what you, just help, help us to obey. God, help us to obey. God, help us to have a yes in our heart to whatever you ask for from us and for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for encouragement in your walk with God and to receive updates on events happening at The Anchor. Have a great week and God bless.